Hey, Article Clubbers, it's me, Mark, and this month we're reading and discussing A Lonely Occupation by Francesca Mari. It's about gentrification in Los Angeles and how real estate developers hire homeless people to house-sit vacant homes while they're being renovated and flipped. This week is all about reading, annotating, and if you like, listening to the article, thanks to the generosity and talent of fellow Article Clubber Jennifer. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for reading this piece for all of us so that we can all take it in. If you appreciate listening to the article, please share your appreciation for Jennifer in the comments. All right, that's it for me. Here's Jennifer. Using the homeless to guard empty houses. As the pandemic makes an already terrible housing crisis worse, a new version of house sitting signals a broken real estate market by Francesca Mari. Wandering around Northwest Pasadena, I press my face against the window of a dingy pink stucco house at 265 Robinson Road. It was April 2019, and in two blocks I had passed 13 bungalows, duplexes, and multifamily homes that had gone through foreclosure in the past 15 years. Twelve of them were still unoccupied. Number 265 had been in foreclosure for a year and a half, and the two small houses on the property had long sat empty. But now inside the rear house there was a gallon jug of water and a bag of peanuts on a Formica kitchen counter. The walls were a mangy taupe, but African print sheets hung over the window. As I walked away, I heard a genteel southern accent from behind me. Can I help you? A black man with perfect posture, wearing loafers and a black t-shirt, tucked into belted trousers, introduced himself as Augustus Evans. I wasn't the first person to wonder what Evans was doing there. A few weeks earlier, two sheriffs had knocked on the door around 11 p.m. and handcuffed him. In his car's glove compartment, they found a letter of employment and the cell phone number of a woman named Diane Montano, who runs Weekend Warriors, a company that provides security for vacant houses. Like many of Montano's employees, Evans was homeless when he was hired. Now he lives in properties that are being flipped, guarding them through the renovation, staging, open house, and inspection periods. In the past seven years, he has protected more than 22 homes in 13 neighborhoods around Los Angeles, almost all historically black and Latino communities. A McMansion in Fontana, a four-unit apartment complex in Compton, a baby mansion on the peak of the mountain in East LA, which had been left to a son who, according to the neighbors, borrowed so much against the equity of the house that he lost it to foreclosure. Before leaving, he poured liquid cement down the drains. Evans guarded the property as the plumbing system was replaced. Empty houses are a strange sight in an area that has one of the most severe housing shortages in the United States. LA has the highest medium home prices relative to income and among the lowest home ownership rates of any major city, according to the UCLA Center for Neighborhood Knowledge. Renting isn't any easier. The area has one of the lowest vacancy rates in the country and the average rent is $2,200 a month. On any night, some 66,000 people there sleep in cars, in shelters, or on the street, an increase of 13% since last year. The housing shortage was caused in part by restrictive zoning, rampant nimbyism, and the use of California's environmental laws to thwart urban development. In 1960, Los Angeles was zoned to house some 10 million people. By 1990, decades of downzoning had reduced that number to 3.9 million, roughly the city's current population. Then, in 2008, the subprime mortgage crisis struck, 
and in the years that followed, thousands of foreclosed homes were sold at auction. Because they had to be purchased in cash, many of them were bought by wealthy investors, private equity-backed real estate funds, and countless other real estate companies leaving less inventory for individual buyers. In the end, the 2008 crash made housing in California even more expensive. Number 265, along with thousands of other homes in LA, was acquired by Wedgwood, a real estate company founded in 1983 that specializes in flipping homes, managing everything from lockouts and financing to renovation and staging. In gentrifying neighborhoods, empty houses are sitting ducks, so companies like Wedgwood hire weekend warriors and other house-sitting services for cheap security. Around Robinson Road, several properties had been broken into. At number 265, a middle-aged black couple had recently crawled in through the front window. When Evans told them to leave, they apologized. The man was a jazz musician, and they said that they were struggling with crystal meth dependency and they used to sleep in this house before Evans arrived. The three went to the front porch and chatted while smoking cigarillos. Evans, who was 67 at the time, took me through the two houses on the lot. He laid a blue tarp over the cream-colored carpet, and in one room he set up an inflatable mattress neatly made with floral fleece coverlet. A Haitian flag baby blanket was wrapped around his pillow. He liked his room warm. When he woke up, he'd crank up his space heater, then brew a cup of coffee and read and write poetry, essays, screenplays at a plastic folding table by his bed. He was contemplating writing a memoir. This is how I keep my sanity, he told me. He had the run of both houses, but he kept to this one room. His life contained in several milk crates on the shelves. He showed me his eighth grade diploma and a picture of a poetry venue that he had opened in Compton in the 90s. It closed after becoming a target of the Crips gang. Two of his screenplays were on the shelves along with the book, The Thoughts of Augustus the Final Poet, which he had self-published in 2014. Hey, Mr. Income, you're my best friend. My pockets are empty. Where have you been? He saved a receipt from the Los Angeles Unified School District, which bought 285 copies for its classrooms. He spent most of his time inside, but when he wanted a change of scenery, he sat in his SUV, a 2001 Infinity, which he'd bought with a house-sitting savings. Evans dreamed of living in the Robin Craft Castle, a 7,000-square-foot historic landmark across the street, which sold for $1.39 million in 2016, and three years later was listed for $2.49 million and he took to caring for a colony of ants under a tree, feeding them chicken bones. The bones disappeared quickly, so he kept watch and spied a cat and a possum come by and realized they weren't just eating the bones, but the ants and everything else. Born to sharecroppers in the Arkansas Delta, Evans is the seventh of 10 children. He picked cotton until he was 11 when his family hitched a ride on a hay truck to Tulare, California. In school, the other children and teachers ridiculed him for his accent his coveralls, his lunches of fat back and collard greens. He dropped out after eighth grade. At 16, he and some cousins were washing cars at a gas station when a money green Cadillac Eldorado rolled in and a black man stepped out. One of Evan's cousins asked the man how he could afford such a car, and he told them that if they came to Los Angeles, he could hook them up with a job that paid $200 a day. That afternoon, the boys took a Greyhound bus to Venice where they began selling little balloons of heroin out of their mouths for $10 each. Not long afterwards, Evans offered drugs to an undercover officer. 
He was arrested and sent to juvenile detention, where he joined the Nation of Islam. His faith estranged him from his Christian family. The old Muslim people, they brainwashed him, I think, his sister Ursel Murray told me. When Evans was released, he moved to Compton, the heart of L.A.'s black activist community. In the 70s, he sold Amway products door-to-door and taught martial arts. He wanted to open a martial arts academy, but no bank would give him a loan. In the fall of 1983, when Derek Stevens, a friend from juvenile detention, asked if Evans wanted in on a bank robbery, Evans said yes. I never thought of robbing a bank, but I did know that's the building with the money in it, and if you got a lot of money, you could do anything you want in America, Evans told me. On a late October morning, Evans, Stevens, and two other men walked into the American Savings and Loan on Crenshaw Boulevard, wearing rubber masks of Presidents Johnson, Nixon, Ford, and Reagan. The men bagged $228,000 and several exploding dye packs in what was then the largest bank robbery in Los Angeles history. It inspired scenes in the movie Point Break. Three months later, Evans was caught in Tampa, Florida, just before boarding a cruise ship to the Bahamas, where he'd hoped to hide. He spent the next seven years locked up, reading, writing, and preaching. When he got out, it was hard to find work. In 1998, Evans rented a derelict office in South LA across from the Magic Johnson Theater to work on his poetry and various business projects, including a short-lived toilet paper delivery service. One day, he gave a CD of himself performing his poetry to a woman who worked in the salon downstairs. He noticed her singing to herself as she braided hair. She was a vocalist out of this world, Evans told me. I mean, she's another Aretha Franklin, Patti LaBelle, Whitney Houston quality of a singer. Soon they got married and he moved into her small apartment in South LA, where they paid some $600 a month. They had two sons and eventually afraid that their children would become involved in the local gangs, they moved with Evans' mother-in-law and brother-in-law to Moreno Valley, a suburb with a fast-growing black population. They had another son, and over the years, they rented homes that ranged from $2,000 to $4,000 a month. As the world eased out of the Great Recession in 2010, his wife told him that their differences had grown too great. Although she had a talent for singing, she earned her nursing degree, but he was still holding on to the hope of becoming a famous poet. You can't just get stagnated and stuck on a dream that has not materialized, she told me. After their divorce was finalized, he put his belongings in a trash bag and walked out, beginning the life of homelessness. He got two weeks' worth of motel vouchers from General Relief, and when those ran out, he headed toward Union Station, where he hoped to sleep on a bench. He was crossing Normandy and Vernon when a couple he knew from the Black Consciousness community spotted him. They took him into their store, a Caribbean gift shop called Blessed Love, and told him that he could sleep there in exchange for some help at the counter. There was a windowless blacklit room in the back with murals of Egyptian iconography on the walls and the solar system painted on the ceiling. He slept there for nearly two years, waking at dawn for morning prayers and opening the store two hours later. One morning, a customer told Evans that he supplemented his social security income by house-sitting for weekend warriors. There were two types of gigs, he explained, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., which paid $500 a month, and 24-7, which paid $800. All you needed was an ID. Evans called Diane Montano at around 10 a.m., and at 2 p.m., a van picked him up and took him to a house in Riverside. The rules were simple. Don't leave, don't host guests, and don't talk to anyone. 
not contractors, property managers, real estate agents, or prospective buyers. If you were working a 24-7, only short trips to the market or the laundromat were allowed. The premises had to be kept clean at all times or pay would be docked. The driver supplied Evans with a mini fridge, a small microwave, an inflatable mattress, and plastic floor coverings to protect the carpet. The driver came by to check on Evans occasionally, always unannounced, photographing each room and sending the pictures to Montano so that she could monitor Evans' cleanliness and track the progress of the renovations. By the time Evans was living at number 265, he had learned the rhythms of the gig. He knew that the driver wouldn't come by at night or on Sundays. When he could, he'd steal out to Moreno Valley, an hour and 20 minutes away, to visit his sons. He kept loose change in a coffee cup in his car, and he'd give his youngest son all the coins he'd collected since his last visit. They know Daddy has to work away from the house, he told me. They're big boys now. Around the end of the month, the driver would deliver a check. In seven years of working for Montano, Evans has never met her. Montano declined to comment for this article. At number 265, two construction workers junked the decades-old kitchen appliances and Formica counters, tore up the carpeting, and laid down ashwood laminate floors. By the end of June, the exterior was painted gray with slate gray trim, the interiors a bright white. Shaker-style cabinets and granite countertops were installed in the kitchens. Edison bulbs hung from the ceiling in black metal light fixtures. Evans' beat-up white microwave and mini-fridge looked incongruous. By October, the property was staged for showing, with wishbone chairs, reclaimed wood tables, and woven wall hangings. In 2005, it had sold for $420,000. Now it was listed for $930,000. A few weeks later, a termite tent went up to address bugs found during a home inspection, the final step in many L.A. real estate transactions. Montano told Evans to leave for a couple days to escape the fumes. Usually he slept in his car, as does about a third of Los Angeles's homeless population, but a strong El Nino had brought heavy rain to California. He accepted Montano's offer to bunk up with another house sitter in Compton in South LA, where the city rents are rising the fastest and where black residents are most likely to be homeless. It's also where many of the house sitters are assigned to work. Mansa Musa L opened the door and was surprised to find that his bunkie was Augustus Evans. He has tremendous respect on the street, Musa, who was born Adrian Roan, told me. He knew that Evans had walked with Louis Farrakhan in the early 80s, and he had seen him at community events. I'm the fantastic immortal classic, Musa, who was 49 and was born in Compton, told me. He's the one and only golden oldie. Whereas Evans dressed in trousers, blazers, and loafers, Musa, a Black Panther, preferred a louder look. He wore a leather jacket, rose-tinted sunglasses, and African beads, and carried a staff with a black plastic snake coiled around it. Learning that Evans was house-sitting made him feel less miserable about his own situation. Musa walked Evans through the small three-bedroom house, pointing out the lack of sinks, cabinets, hot water, and heat. The only thing that functioned was the toilet. Musa's life has been shaped by LA's demographic trends. As recent books like The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein and Race for Profit by Kinga Yamada Taylor explain, a number of inner-city ghettos like Compton were formed by government policy. During the Great Depression, the government tried to enlarge the middle class by encouraging home ownership through the creation of the 30-year mortgage. 
but restrictive covenants prohibited black people from buying houses in certain neighborhoods and further limitations were imposed by redlining, which barred prospective buyers in areas with large numbers of people of color from receiving federal insured loans. During the Second World War, LA's black population almost doubled as newcomers were drawn by factory jobs. Residents of Compton, which was then nearly all white, protested new housing for the workers. A large public housing complex that had been planned for their neighborhood was moved to Watts, a racially mixed neighborhood nearby. By 1958, it was 95% black, Rothstein wrote in an op-ed in the Los Angeles Times. Public housing was largely responsible for this segregation. It wasn't long before white people fled Compton, where Moose's parents bought a house in the early 70s. By then, L.A. had the fastest-growing black population outside the southeast, three-quarters of it concentrated in South L.A. Moose's father worked for the city in the records library, and as much as a fifth of the black population had solid manufacturing jobs. But by the 80s, those jobs had disappeared or gone overseas. Moose, like many black Gen Xers, fared worse than his parents. The foreclosure crisis was ruinous to L.A.'s black communities, in part because residents, after decades of being denied mortgages, had been disproportionately targeted for predatory loans and reverse mortgages. When the bubble burst, black people were 71% more likely than white people to lose their homes. Last year, black home ownership reached its lowest rate since 1968, when housing discrimination was outlawed by the passage of the Fair Housing Act. Even as renters, black people are in a uniquely precarious situation. Jacqueline Wagoner, a president of Enterprise Community Partners, an affordable housing nonprofit, and the chair of the Ad Hoc Committee on Black People Experiencing Homelessness, told me, when people are severely rent burdened, they don't really have anyone to call. Their siblings or family members, many of them are one paycheck away from being homeless themselves. A 2016 report found that white households in L.A. have a median net worth of $355,000. The figure for black households is $4,000. The pandemic is making a terrible housing crisis even worse. For the first time in more than a decade, rents have stopped rising, but income has fallen precipitously. It is estimated that among renters in L.A. County, a group that is disproportionately black and Latino, at least 365,000 households currently don't have an adult with enough income to pay the rent. Although only 8% of Los Angeles residents are black, black people make up 42% of the homeless population. I come from a pretty good family, Musa told me. I grew up with a two-parent household, and I still couldn't make it work. Like Evans, Musa found himself homeless after his marriage fell apart in 2017. In 2018, half of all unhoused people in L.A. County were homeless for the first time in their lives. A compounding factor for both Evans and Musa was a criminal record, which made it harder to get a job and to pass credit and background checks. As a radical young activist, Musa had served time for commercial burglary, possession of an explosive device, and assault and battery. His driver's license had also been suspended. Can't be no Black Panther and follow all the rules, he joked. For a year, Musa slept wherever he could, on couches, on someone's laundry room floor, and in cars and mobile homes that friends were trying to sell. He stayed until he wore out his welcome. You can tell you have to walk, he said, rather than make it all melodramatic. You better do that. On April 1st, 2017, he had a heart attack. A year and a half later, he had a stroke. 
the average life expectancy of homeless people is estimated to be almost 30 years shorter than that of the general population. When a doctor learned that he didn't have a home, he was referred to a shelter. Many of the people checking into the shelter were unbathed or mentally ill. The shelter felt like county jail on the streets, Musa said. His younger brother, who had been house-sitting for a couple of years, shared Montano's number. Musa took a selfie and texted it to her along with a picture of his state ID. Soon afterward, a driver picked up Musa and took him to an apartment complex in Buena Park, an affluent area in Orange County. I was like, yeah, all right, this is it, he said. But as an outsider in white suburbia without a car or money, he went hungry. After several days, he texted his brother who drove him to a Wendy's. Musa took a sip of cold soda and his system was so shocked that his entire body began to shake. It'd be a lot of unpredictability and instability to it, Musa said of house sitting. There's been times I feel like a turkey on Thanksgiving Eve. If a property was listed for sale, he might find out at six in the morning when a real estate agent wanting to beat traffic arrived without warning. I'll be pumping a log and they'll come in before it hits the water, Musa said. I'll exit the bathroom and the realtor standing there three feet away. Oh, um, can we look in here? The house sitters aren't told who owns the homes they're protecting, but it's apparent when the for sale signs go up, Wedgwood and its subsidiary Maxim Properties, which are based in Redondo Beach. In recent filings, the company has reported buying and selling several thousand homes in L.A. County each year and many more up and down the West Coast and in Florida. The company uses more than a dozen different LLC names, many of which sound like ski resorts, such as Catamount Properties and Breckenridge. A significant number of its Los Angeles properties and seemingly all of those assigned a house center are in communities of color. Many of the neighborhoods that were redlined are seeing investment pour back for the first time since they were redlined in the 1930s. Braden Cooks, a co-founder of Designing the We, a design and social impact studio that has staged exhibits on redlining throughout the country, told me. But because of this historic wealth destruction, because people lost ownership and are mostly renters, you don't see the speculative investment that's pouring back into urban and redlined neighborhoods, lifting everyone's boats. You see it washing them away. Wedgwood's role in the housing crisis hasn't gone unnoticed. The week before Thanksgiving 2019, a group of black mothers calling themselves Moms for Housing occupied a Wedgwood property in West Oakland that they said had been vacant for years. They washed the walls, installed a water heater, and set up their children's bunk beds. Then they began paying the water and electric bills. Two months later, Alameda County Sheriff's Deputy arrived in riot gear and removed them. Shelter-in-place orders to minimize the spread of COVID-19 have brought new attention to vacant homes owned by investors. The Alliance for Californians for Community Empowerment, which supported Moms for Housing, staged an occupation of vacant homes owned by Caltrans in LA, and throughout the summer, the group organized rent strikes and protests against eviction. Michael Lindsay, another house sitter, didn't like how Wedgwood acquired properties from people who had lost them in distress, but he told me that he'd made peace with it, and at least he loved how Wedgwood renovated them. All of our signature houses have the pretty cream carpet, the gray wood floors that are really nice, that mix with the gray granite tops, he said. There was one house sitting assignment that rested uneasily in Lindsay's mind. A house in Compton that had been lived in by the same family for three generations was foreclosed on after the mother died. When Lindsay showed up, the family was still there. 
Rather than informing weekend warriors and calling the sheriff for a lockout, he decided to give them another week. He told his boss that the property was secure and that he could clear out the furniture himself. The family cried in relief when he told them, but after the week was over, the construction workers arrived and they had to leave. I asked Musa as he stood smoking in the backyard if it felt weird to work for a company that's implicated in the gentrification of his neighborhood. Hold on, he said. Man, wow, does that shit feel weird? He looked up at the sky considering and then snapped his head down. No, he yelled. It feel like racist white folks still controlling my existence all the time, which is still the same reason why I don't even vote. But Evan saw house sitting as a blessing. Unfortunately, I'm one of those who need shelter of any kind, and I've got shelter with pay through the cold, raining months, thanks to Diane, he said. The checks were often late, but they always came eventually, and he could concentrate on his reading and writing. I got 24-hour peace, he said. His years in prison had accustomed him to solitude. He could sit there for 10, 12 hours a day. He tried to stay out of people's way. In November, 265 Robinson Road went into contract, and on a rainy Thursday in early December, the new owner, a black man in his 40s, knocked on the door. He toured the house and told Evans that he would be moving in the next day. All of this, Evans said, pointing to the colorful African sheets and inflatable mattress, it won't be here tomorrow. It'll be like I was never here. Montano had a new assignment for Evans replacing a house sitter whom she didn't trust at a condo that was under contract for $330,000 in Panorama City, a predominantly Latino suburb. Intruders had left a large black stain on the carpet in the master bedroom. Montano told Evans to protect the property while the carpet was replaced. When he arrived at the beige stucco complex, a young man and woman were rolling a blunt on the front steps. Evans toured the premises, a living room with a fireplace, dining area with low-hanging light fixture, Upstairs were two bedrooms with cream-colored carpet throughout. Evans put protective plastic on the floor of the smaller room, which had a view in two directions, and inflated his mattress. At 1.30 in the morning, Evans heard the front door opening. He rose and walked to the top of the stairs and saw a man and a woman in their 30s. Are you squatting in here? the man asked, agitated. I'm security, Evans told them. Well, can a woman use the bathroom? the man asked. No, come on, let's go, the woman said. The next morning, workers came to replace the bedroom carpet, and Montano texted Evans to tell him that he needed to be out by 11 a.m. He could bunk back in Compton. For the first time in what seemed like years, it was Friday and Evans was off the clock. That night, he decided to go to one of the clubs he used to visit in his youth, order a Shirley Temple, and see some live music. But before he could choose which club to go to, he got a text from Montano. The sale of the condo had fallen through, the roof was leaking and water was streaming into one of the bathrooms, and she needed him back there immediately. He got into his car and hoped it would make it back to Panorama City. A couple of weeks later at 9 a.m., Evans heard the front door open. A woman in her 40s entered with a bag full of recycling. She knew the smart lock code and assumed that Evans was the boyfriend of the woman who'd given it to her. She'd come to take a shower. A lot of times when Diane hires someone, they're pretty much homeless anyway. So they identify with the homeless, and as a result, they sympathize and break the rules, Evans told me. I can identify with the homeless myself. Nevertheless, he told the woman that she had to leave. She walked to the complex's trash area and began digging. Musa was fired from house-sitting in January after a neighbor accused him of making racist comments. He told me that he'd merely introduced himself to the neighbors, as instructed by weekend warriors. 
As the coronavirus began to ravage communities of color, his ex-wife agreed to let him move in temporarily with her and their children. An early fatality was Evans' ex-wife's brother, whom Evans had lived with in Moreno Valley. He caught the coronavirus in a convalescent home where he was recovering from a toe amputation necessitated by his diabetes. Evans called Montano and requested his house sitting check so that he can contribute to the cost of the funeral, which the family still hasn't been able to have. But the virus brought a measure of stability to Evans' life. He had been in the same home since January when he was assigned to a duplex in Santa Ana. Construction stopped in March after a truck deposited new appliances, which sat in their boxes unopened all summer. Evans didn't mind the lockdown. I've been quarantining for seven years, he said. He began writing a new essay about the sort of relationship he sought, the type of woman he'd want to be cooped up with during a pandemic. It was inspired by a radio story on the recent rise in domestic violence. Yet sometimes restlessness struck him. He bought two maps, one of the U.S. and one of the world, and taped them on the wall opposite his bed. He thought about getting a passport. I always thought it was thousands of dollars, but it's only a hundred, he said, and looked up prices for flights to Egypt and Jamaica. His memoir project had stalled around Christmas. He'd been trying to dictate the book into Otter, a voice transcription app, but hadn't had the heart to keep talking alone. I suggested that he invite his sons over to listen, but he shook his head. So much of my history in my life I conceal because I don't need to have my children dreaming nightmares over their father's stories, he told me. My life, you know, is not an attractive life. There's no glory in it. I've never been in the military. I've never been out of the country. The only thing that's oppressive is that in a few days, shoot, next week, I'll be 68 years old. He longed for a home of his own where he could watch movies with his sons and be surrounded by the possessions that he was currently paying $80 a month to keep in storage. His social security check was $838 a month. He couldn't afford much, but as a senior citizen, he thought he might qualify for affordable housing. He called three nonprofits specializing in housing for the elderly. All of them said that they had a waiting list of between five and 10 years. The news gave him insomnia. In the middle of the night, he wrote, Millionaires and billionaires and trillionaires, you will not be moving from this earth to any other planet. You will not be importing water to start civilization on the moon. My name is Augustus and I'm here to announce your doom. I want you to look me in my eye and read my lips before you trip trying to run from the angry populations and board spaceships. One night he asked me how to use Craigslist. We pulled it up on his phone. What's your dream neighborhood, I asked. Oh, wow, he said, marveling at the idea of choosing where he wanted to live. Culver City. Wait, no, Carson. Carson got too much pollution there. Long Beach. There was a pause. Damn, what neighborhood would I want to move into? Well, you know, I'll just type this in just to see. He finally said, C-O-M-P-T-O-N. He scrolled through bland bungalows on rundown blocks. You know, they used to call that Chocolate City, he said wistfully. You can't even get a single for $1,600, he said. Try and navigate the pictures. I got to go sell me some books.